Yeah, well, obviously not with double pneumonia. And, yeah, he, uh, his health has been, been bad for a while. So uh, you'd be praying for Brother O.G. I love him. I miss him. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 8 all the way through chapter 23, verse 2. So uh, it is quite a few verses there. What I want to talk to you about is rediscovering the Word of God. I mentioned while you're looking that up, I mentioned in Sunday school this morning about the ride of Paul Revere and uh, how I believe that happened in 1776. I'm sure it happened on uh, April the 18th, which, which is today the anniversary of his famous ride. But uh, this date shares uh, that with uh, 500 years ago today in uh, 1521. 500 years ago today, Martin Luther refused to recant, you know, when he nailed the uh, 95 theses to the wall of the uh, chapel there about the Roman Catholic Church and there were 95 things that he said that was wrong with the Catholic Church and and uh, that needed reformation or reforming. He wasn't out to, to change uh, churches or denominations or any of those things. All he wanted to do was try to help the Catholic Church come back into uh, playing with the Word of God. And of course, we know how that turned out. And then three years later, three and a half years later, that was in 1517 and 1521, on this date, 500 years ago, they had what's called the Diet of Worms. Now that's spelled W-O-R-M-S, like the Diet of Worms. And when I first read that, I thought, that's nasty. That's just, who in the world would want to have a Diet of Worms? But it was just a, a meeting of people to try to talk Martin Luther into recanting and to changing uh, his mind about the things that he had said about the church. And here is what Martin Luther himself said at that Diet of Worms. He said, My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. May I say amen to, uh, to what Martin Luther was doing and to what Martin Luther said. He took a stand on the Word of God. And I think that we should take a stand on the truths of the Word of God. He not only stood for something, um, he at his peril stood against something. Sometimes it's not enough just to stand for what is right, for what is good, for what is holy, for what is godly. Sometimes you've got to put yourself in harm's way and stand against that which is evil, that which is wrong. Martin Luther was the kind of man that he said, here I stand, I can do no other. God, help me. I understand the consequences of my actions or the possible consequences of my actions. He stood against what was then being taught, preached, and practiced 
in the churches of that day. This was the beginning of the Reformation. This is what brought about us being able to be Baptist and Presbyterians and Methodist and all of the different denominational distinctives that we hold uh, dear today is because of a man 500 years ago being willing to take a stand for the Word of God. Many of the same things that he was taking a stand against back then are being taught today from not only the pulpits of false religions and denominations, but actually from the pulpits of what we call Baptist churches. Again, I stand with Martin Luther, my conscience being held captive by the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. I hope and pray that on this, the anniversary of Martin Luther's stand and the beginning of the Reformation, that you too will decide in your heart and in your mind that there are more important things in this world than life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That there are things in this world that are worth the shedding of my blood over. If you don't have anything that you are willing to die for, what exactly is it that you're willing to live for? What are you living for if not for the glory and honor of God? If not for the glory and honor of God's Word? If not for the truth of God's Word? And for us to be willing to stand against all error. In 1947, there were some Bedouin shepherds that accidentally stumbled on the most important biblical manuscripts discovered in our times, and you know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were priceless, and they are priceless copies of Holy Scripture that had been hidden, unknown to man for nearly 2,000 years, hidden in some caves. Nobody knew where they were. Nobody, No eyes had, had uh, seen them for over... 2,000 years. Now, if you can imagine the excitement that took place back in 1947 when they discovered these and they were brought you know, up from the ground out of the caves and laid before people to realize and to study and to learn and to understand what it exactly was that they had found, then you will understand and appreciate the excitement in the text that we're going to be reading. You see, this is a time back in 638 B.C. that the kings, and you can read through the book of Kings and it, 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 it reads like a history book, but it, it, it says over and over and over what a man that came to the throne of of Judah. It wasn't the, the the kingdom had been divided and you have the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. You have ten tribes and two tribes. You have the northern tribes and then you have the southern tribes. And out of all of the kings that came to the throne in either one of those, if you were taking a test and marked them all as evil men, wicked men, ungodly men, you would pass the test because there were so few that were holy and righteous and did that which was good in the eyes of God. And up to this point, Judah's history had been literally a lineup of sorry, weak, 
unscrupulous rulers, kings. There's one verse that describes their reigns. Uh, Every time you see a king come to the throne, you read these words, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord over and over and over and over until all of a sudden, here in chapter 22, and we're going to begin in verse 8, but you look at at verse 1, and I'll I'll read you this. Uh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Isn't that something? A 12-year-old child beginning to reign over the nation of Judah and began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, of course. And uh, of course... When we come to this young man's name, Josiah, you look in chapter 22 and verse 1, and it says this, Josiah, though, was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah and Boscath. And then it says in verse 2, like a a spring rain falling gently on your face in a dry, hot summer. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David, his father. Now, David was certainly not his immediate father, but was a grandfather down the road. But all of these other kings had come and gone, and they were wicked, and they were evil. And there was in King Josiah, who uh, so, you know, his reign began at eight years old. A man, a young boy. Uh, I believe, boy, I thank God for godly mamas, amen? Because I'm telling you, an eight-year-old boy leading the nation of Israel is very much not only under the control of God, but under the control of his mother. And I believe his mother, that I mentioned her name a while ago, was such an, uh, uh, um, an imperative part uh, of his kingship and his rule over the nation of Israel, that had she not been there, he may not have been the man. He may not have been the, God, uh, the, the king, the ruler that he wound up or turned out to be. And suddenly that rhythm breaks. And it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and uh, did not turn aside from the right or to the left. Boy, I wish I could say that about myself. Don't you? That, uh, well, you know, I, I have the desire to do that which is right in the sight of God. Now, I can say that that is true. But I cannot say that I didn't turn to the right or to the left. That I've never faltered. I've never failed. Certainly I have. But see, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. I I thought about that when I was studying for this, this message. And then I realized, well, David, the Bible says, David was a man after God's own heart with all of the sin that he had in his life. And then I think of Job. And it says that Job, even when he was living in the, in the land of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Bible in the New Testament, it says he, he vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the evil deeds of those that were surrounding him. He partook 
of the lifestyle of the people that were there. And yet, His righteousness was not in Himself. His righteousness was in His faith in the God that He had put His trust. So we see that the reign of Josiah, one of Judah's most noble kings, began at eight years old and on his 26th birthday, his life took a real, real big turn. Because like these Bedouin shepherds that found in 1947 these scrolls that were buried for 2,000 years, he had some servants that went into the house of God. See, God, God had not been mentioned. God had not been preached. God had not been taught. The law had not been taught to the nation for years and years because he did that which was evil in the sight of God. He did that which was evil in the sight of God. And king after king after king, year after year after year after year, there was more and more and greater and greater separation between the people of God and the God of the people because there was no word being preached. And these servants, they go into the house of God and rumbling through rubbish and turning over baskets and they come up with a book. And the book turns out to be the law of God. The commandments of God. They had no idea. Just like those, those shepherds that found the scrolls. They had absolutely no idea what it was that they had. So they took him to some people that would know a little bit more than they did. And they looked at it and their eyes got wide. I can almost see the realization and the understanding of what it was that they were holding in their hands come across their face and they ran to the young king who was now in his 20s. He shows him the, the pages of the law of God. And he commands them to read it to him. You look in verse 8, and we'll pick up there. It says, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again, and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that have oversight of the house of the Lord. You see, when he was on his 26th birthday, King Josiah decided that he was going to rebuild the temple of God. That's what these men were doing in the house of God, rumbling through, rummaging through all of the stuff that had been destroyed in the previous years. And King Josiah, loving God, following at, wanting to do that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, following after that which his father David had done, he decided that he was going to rebuild the temple and have a revival of religious truth by rebuilding the temple. But my friend, listen. It wasn't the house of God that was going to bring revival. It was the Word of God. You see, it's always the Word of God that pierces the heart, that illuminates and wakens the dead soul, 
that revives and quickens the lost mind, that brings them to an understanding of their lostness, their separation from a holy and righteous God. Verse 10 says, And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. That means he tore his clothes. He ripped them. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Milkiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the servant, and the kings uh, of the king, saying, Go and inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Achaim and Akbar and Shaphan and Azhiah went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college and they communed with her. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of this book which the king of Judah hath read, because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands." Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, which is this young man, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when he, uh, when thou heardest uh, what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Behold, therefore I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered unto the grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king again word. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets, and all of the people, both small and great. And they read in the ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. My word, can you imagine standing and listening to all of the words of the law out of the book of Leviticus? Out of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. Stand there and listen. Just listen to the word being read 
over and over and over and again. You know, I mentioned this morning what John MacArthur said about pastors and and it stabbed me in the heart the first time I read it, but it is true. I guess that's what what stabbed me was he said, we as pastors, we as ministers, we're not ships. We don't prepare the meal. The meal has already been prepared by God. We are table waiters. We are to fill the plate and to bring it and lay it on the table and try not to mess it up before it gets to the people. The message of God is the Word of God. Not the Word of man. And when this young 26-year-old king had the Word of God laid before him, he realized, you see, it's the Word of God that illuminates, regenerates, wakes up, and draws us to Himself, that saves our souls, that changes our destiny from hell to heaven. But the Word of God had been lost for years and years and years. And may I say that it's a timeless truth Today that the Word of God is continuously, habitually being lost over and over and over and over. It's lost not only from behind the pulpits of churches around America and around the world, but it is lost in the hearts and the minds and in the lives of the people of God that call themselves His children. We have Bibles in our homes that are lost on the shelves that are catching dust that we very rarely pick up and open and read and hide the Word of God in our hearts. We've memorized verses from back when we were children in Sunday school that are long lost. That if we tried to search our memory and quote some of the verses that we used to know, we would find out so suddenly that they've been lost in our own minds and hearts. Would to God that we would find the excitement that I believe Martin Luther had when he realized in the Word of God, he found in the Word of God the grace of God. See, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace of God that is greater than all of my sin. And he saw the grace of God in comparison to the works-based theology of the church that he was a member of. And he realized that the things that they were teaching, the things that they were doing was wrong. And he had the excitement of hoping that he could make a change being willing to do whatever it took for that to take place. Would to God we had some Martin Luthers today. Would to God we had some men and women that could find some excitement in studying the Word of God and finding out truths that have been hidden from our hearts and our minds. For so many different reasons. Not only because we have a lack of study, but because a lot of the people that are standing behind pulpits today are feeding nothing but cotton candy to their, to their constituents, to their flock. God have mercy. God have mercy on their souls when they stand before God and give an account of the lives that they lived and the preaching that they have preached when they look in the face of our Lord and Savior. But every time the Bible is rediscovered, the title of my message is Rediscovering the Word of God. Martin Luther did it, obviously. Josiah and the nation of Judah did it. And this 
this discovery that they found brought about the greatest revival that the nation of Israel and Judah had ever experienced. And I don't believe have experienced since. And that's what it does every time that the Word of God is rediscovered. It brings about personal revival in our own hearts, in our own life, in our own homes and families when we are diligent and search out the Word of God and hide it in our heart that we might not sin against God. When we burn neurons, when we do the brain sweat. It's mental gymnastics to really dig in the Word of God and pray and study. Hide it in your heart. Somebody called me a day or two ago, said he was buying his wife a study Bible and wanted to know what type I recommended. And I said, well, there are a lot of them out there. Amen. What type of Bible does she read? By that, I meant what translation? He said a King James Version. And I said, then you can hardly go wrong with the King James Version Study Bible. They, they are great helps. If you have trouble just reading the Word of God and gaining access to spiritual light and understanding, then by all means, use the opportunities that you have at your fingertips. We have computers. We have so much access to things that are, are helpful to us to be able to gain insight, to gain understanding. And once you start gaining light and information, I'll tell you, it is addictive. You cannot stop. Once you start learning and God starts moving in your heart and you start seeing the truths of the Word of God, you cannot stop. It's almost like that lemon pie Miss Sadie brought to Sunday school this morning. It's delicious. And I get addicted to it. Really quick. And every time that I get slack, and every time that I fall away, and every time that I allow the Word of God to become lost in my heart and in my mind and on the bookshelves and in the computers of my study, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit of God convicts and illuminates and draws me back to Himself, and I get back into the Word of God, there is a fresh revival that takes place in my heart. Nothing else can touch Nothing else this world has to offer is as sweet as the Word of God. My friend, I want you to know that it, it's not the world-shaking movements of revival that are so important. It is the individual revival of the heart of the person who pants and thirsts after the Word of God. You see, it changes your life. The greatest power of Scripture is not its ability to start movements and world-renowned revivals, but its ability to change lives. And not just the lives of saved who have backslidden, but the lives of those who are lost. Because when we as the church allow the Word of God to become lost on us and in us and to us, then the Word of God ceases to be preached to the lost and dying world. And we are the ones who are held to that fire. 
We are the ones who are held, our feet are held to that fire of preaching and sharing and living the gospel in front of a lost and dying world. What can a rediscovery of the Bible mean to us? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you what. You ask a man who's laying on his deathbed, who has just read the words, I am the resurrection and the life. Find out what it means to him. You see the lady that is a widow that is kneeling by the graveside of her husband that has just passed. And you remind her, the Lord is my shepherd. You ask her what the Word of God means to her. You ask a lonely, oh, guilt-ridden sinner like the one standing behind this pulpit, what it means to read the words, for God so loved the world. Nothing's more important than that. There was people that were on the boat South Louisiana. They need the peace of God that passes all understanding. It's only found in the Word of God. You can't find that anywhere else. There's nothing else this world has to offer that can reach into their hearts, into their minds, bring comfort peace. There's not a word that you can say. There's not arms big enough to wrap around and to squeeze tight enough to fix what's going on in their lives. But you can whisper the name of Jesus and bring a peace that passes all understanding to their lives. It's the Word of God. The Word of God. Share it. And use words if necessary. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your love, for Your mercy. God, we thank You for this opportunity to be here in Your house with Your people. God, more importantly with You, God, Your Word. Lord, how I pray that You'll move in hearts and lives. That You'll use Your Word. It's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides asunder both soul and spirit. How I pray, O oh God, that you'll, you'll cut away the flesh with Your Word, expose our hearts, our souls. Help us, O oh God, to see You more clearly than we've ever seen You. We'll give You the praise for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.